I do have one question before we start. Yes. Nonne estes oblectati? I have nothing to offer in response. Are you not entertained? Oh, oh, oh wow, you even you, you did some Latin lookup or Latin uh, val- validation? We're doing Gladiator. I'm going full force, my man. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real DMC Podcast. DMC stands for Dave, Marks, and Colin. Uh, today, we are, at least temporarily, only the Real DC Podcast. Because it's only Dave and Colin that are here. Last check-in, Marcus was... Where was Marcus? He was at Bay Meadows? Bay Meadows, getting some food, and then he'd have to go home and eat it. Marcus will join somewhere in progress, and we'll figure out how to edit him in later. Uh, apparently, Marcus doesn't understand start times. 1 p.m. I mean, maybe he was on Mountain Standard Time or Hawaii Time. Not really sure. We'll soldier on without him. Well, and I do hope that Marcus actually shows up because it is his pick at the end of today's film. And if uh, he's not here, Colin, I guess it's going to roll to you to make the pick. Oh, cool. Well, I actually have two in mind, so that could be interesting. Today, the film we're here to talk about is my pick. It is 2000's Best Picture winner, directed by Ridley Scott, Gladiator. The general became a slave. The slave who became a gladiator. The gladiator defied an emperor. Only a famous death will do. The frost. Sometimes it makes the blade stick. You find yourself alone, riding in green fields with the sun on your face. Do not be troubled. For you are in Elysium, and you're already dead! What we do in life echoes in eternity. Uh, Just some high-level introduction for the movie itself. It was a huge success across the board. It was a success critically and a success when it comes to the box office performance. It was actually number three for the year 2000. It brought in $186 million domestically, made a total of $457 million worldwide, and the overall budget was $103 million. And let me tell you something. I mean, it's $103 million, and Ridley Scott really got a lot out of his money. We'll talk about that as we go through this, because this is a very impressive film. The film maintains an 8.5 rating on the IMDb, so it's definitely very highly regarded. And it was nominated for 12 Academy Awards, and it won five. So it won for Best Picture, Best Actor for Russell Crowe, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, and Best Visual Effects. Definitely very successful. Can we talk about that for a sec? I just want to go through because I was trying to think of uh, what were the other nominees in, in 2000 for yeah. Best Picture. And so they were Chocolat. All I can hear is Charles Boyle saying Chocolat. <laughs> Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Aaron Brockovich, and Traffic. So this was the year where Steven Soderbergh had two films that he directed and nominated for Best Picture. And he actually also won Best Director for Aaron Brockovich. So let's talk about this because I'm, I'm curious. Looking back on this before re-watching this movie, if, if you told me that oh, Gladiator won Best Picture, I would have kind of thought, eh, I wonder if that was the right choice or not. But after re-watching it and looking at these films, I think it's 100% the right choice. I think it's head and shoulders above most of those other movies. Maybe Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon could be a contender, I guess, out of the next one. Do you think it was appropriately recognized? We apparently had the exact same thought here because I wanted to go back and see, like, was it... You know, I, I remembered that it did win yeah. Best Picture, but I was 
wonder, is it worthy of Best Picture? I like all those films. I really like Traffic, but I also really, really like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I was thinking the same thing. It was probably the, the, the only one that really was a maybe a tight yeah. contender, but it did win Best Foreign Language Film. So I was like, okay, that's fine. So I think overall, just based on how big of an epic Gladiator is, and also the, how it resonated with the audience, I think it was the right choice. I was curious because when I was thinking about this myself, I was trying to imagine, you know, what is best picture, like, like in terms of how you recognize it. Because if you look at best picture going back maybe from now 10 years, a lot of those best pictures are really focused on the subject material of the movie, like the story, the narrative, the message it's trying to send. This movie feels more like it's recognized in terms of the artistry, the craftsmanship, the, sh the sheer scope of what was actually delivered. So, I, you know, I've always kind of wondered right now, if, you know, what do you think best means in best picture? Like, what do you think the main criteria is used to identify it? I think it's currently evolving. And that's because there's a lot of change within the Academy, within the voters. There's a lot more new, younger voters. And a lot of the older voting members have been sort of purged. So yeah, it's it's hard for me to say. I I would have said back then it's much more about if it's British and it's uh, period, it's going to win right. Best Picture. And in some cases, it should. In other cases, it's like sort of the safe, predictable Academy um, pick. I don't know that there was that any of those movies this year or you know in two thousand. There probably were a few, but, you know, look, just looking through the different films, I think it was, there was a definitely a shift this year into more diverse films. I think the fact that they nominated two Soderbergh films, those are more of the kinds of films that would, they would choose. But Gladiator is also just this huge spectacle, and it is so incredibly right. well made. They call it an American film, but to be honest, the whole thing is like a British, it's mostly a British right. cast with a few minor exceptions. It's a British director. It was filmed in, in Britain and in Malta. And so I don't really call it an American film, but this is basically Oscar bait. In the, but it was also so good that this is the type of movie like Ben-Hur that they sort of lap up, right? When I went through and I was looking at the history of Best Picture, because I just went all the way from Gladiator to now, and I was, I was going through and looking at the movies, this very much feels like it's almost kind of a last sort of hurrah of the big Hollywood spectacle film in some respects it, it, it feels like that because obviously you can't get away from ben-hur as a point of comparison on this right and then you have spartacus and some of these other very famous big productions and of course you had cleopatra and thousands of extras and huge pageantry and all that and there's a lot of that here prior to rewatching it i was thinking that maybe it was the old guard of the academy that was just trying to recognize what they saw as a big picture a comparison to classic hollywood big spectacle uh, which this definitely is but I actually think that, I mean, this is well-deserved after, after re-watching this movie. I think it's, a, I think it's an in, a really impressive achievement. Yeah, I, I agree. I actually think that this was sort of a, a return to that because I, I think, especially with the subject of Rome, that sort of petered out in like the 60s. There was a big lull in those types of films about the Romans. And then you get this and then it sort of kick-started more of the swords and sandals. Like people were suddenly like interested yeah. again. And I think it's great for me. You know, I hadn't seen any of those other movies except for on TV. Now you get to see it on the big screen. And it was, it was spectacle and it was great. Yes, it's incredibly entertaining. At the time, best actor for Russell Crowe. I think I probably had the same reaction, which was a bit of a surprise. But I'm like, oh, you know, was it really worthy in terms of a performance? And after rewatching it, I'd go yes. Because honestly, when as soon as he shows up on screen as Maximus, 
I'm totally bought into him as the character. Like it, it takes 30 to 45 seconds mm-hmm. when you first see him. I forget that it's Russell Crowe. I'm totally bought in that it's Maximus. The way that they introduce him is super effective. The costuming and the dialogue they give him right in the beginning, it's it just sets him up as a pretty impressive figure and, 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 a, and a character. And I really think he... The performance, I think, is super impressive. He sort of goes up and down over the course of the movie in terms of playing really big, and then he does a lot of small, kind of smoldering, almost like where he's smirking when he's a slave and all that. He just does a fantastic job with the role. I think it's a magnetic screen performance. I'm very impressive. Agree 100%. And this movie really rocketed him to superstardom. When you look at the other nominees, you can clearly say that, yes, he, he deserved to win this, I think. So we had Javier Bardem for Before Night Falls. Tom Hanks in Castaway, Ed Harris is in Pollock, and uh, Jeffrey Rush in Quills. I think I've seen all of those movies, or maybe like most of them. The performance that you remember, the one that still you remember to today, even before I rewatched it, it's Russell right. Crowe. I mean, that the movie had a lasting effect, and everyone knows Maximus. By the way, if you want to see a fun moment, go back and watch Russell Crowe when he wins the Oscar. Because, you know, a lot of actors, I think, they try to act surprised and all that. When you see his name announced and he stands up, it looks like he's almost about to fall over. Sort of shaky for the first few steps and then he gets to the stage and he actually has, he ends up thanking a lot of people, but he has a very nice, he closes it in a very nice way. You know when you, uh, when you grow up in the suburbs of Sydney or Auckland or Newcastle like Ridley or Jamie Bell or the suburbs of anywhere, you know, a dream like this seems kind of uh, vaguely ludicrous and completely unattainable. But this moment is directly connected to those childhood imaginings. And for anybody who's on the uh, downside of advantage and relying purely on courage, it's possible. Thanks very much. And it's just a, it's a nice speech and it's a nice moment. And I, I do believe that he was genuinely shocked he won the award at the time. So it's fun to watch. And then Best Supporting Actor, Joaquin Phoenix was nominated, but he did not win. It was uh, Benicio Del Toro in Traffic. Do you think he should have won? Overall, I think it's a really, it's a strong, fun performance, but there's a little bit of mustache twirling villain in terms of how he plays Commodus. (laughs) I actually watched a couple of behind the scenes documentaries just when I was doing research on this movie. And you see young Joaquin Phoenix off camera when they're interviewing him. He's kind of like, he's just excited to be there. And it's just a different Joaquin Phoenix energy than you used to see him in interviews. So it's kind of fun to see. I read somewhere that he was very, very nervous what before shooting his scenes russell crowe he wasn't really quite sure how to deal with that and went to richard harris who then suggested that they get a few pints in him so they did apparently (laughs) guess it worked richard harris in this movie too just awesome we we, we can talk about that in a minute yeah when was the last time that you rewatched this movie prior to now well i used to almost have it on on replay (laughs) back after 2000 because i had it on dvd and i watched it over and over so, but I hadn't actually seen it probably in five or six years. I don't think I've probably seen it in over 10. So oh, it's really? been It's been a while, a while for me, yeah. Hmm. I saw you smile when I mentioned the music, but I actually, I think the music is great. I have several tracks on the score that I rotate through out when I'm walking, when I have it on my uh, Spotify list. I smiled because, well, for one thing, apparently um, Hans Zimmer's score is one of the best-selling movie soundtracks of all time. I'm not surprised. Uh-huh. Yeah. I did not. The ending song, the one that plays over the credits and at the end, called Now We Are Free, that he wrote with uh, Lisa Gerard, 
is really good. I, I really like that a lot. I, it reminded me of Enya, and I think a lot of people thought it was Enya at the time. Yeah. And unfortunately, she should have probably won an Academy Award along with him for that. He did win, right? Uh, he did not win, He actually. did not win. Okay, well, then I guess I'm not so upset that she didn't get the award <laughs> alongside him. The reason why I was smiling, I really like the score a lot, too. I really like the music, but as I was listening to it, especially like in the battle sequences, the first, the opening battle sequence, and then again, I think as the Battle of Carthage, I could right. clearly hear the strains of Holst's Mars, his planet's suite. I looked in the soundtrack section to see where the credits were, and I didn't see Holst at all there. And then I did a little research, and it turns out that I'm not the only one who thought this. He was actually sued for like plagiarizing the music. Oh, really? It was ultimately dismissed, but and this was back in like 2006. But I can clearly hear that music in there. Another thing that I read and upon listening to it again, I totally could hear it was just such a, a close resemblance to some music by Wagner, specifically like Siegfried's funeral music. And this is during the, mm -hmm. the scene where they're returning to Rome to much fanfare. Right. I listened to it again. I was like, oh God, yeah, totally. I, and I know that music really, really well because I've listened to it about a million times. I sort of feel now that you know, like he plagiarized a lot of what's best about the music. Maybe he did, but to good effect. Yeah, I mean, like Hans Zimmer, he's a great, great composer. In this case, he cheated a little bit and didn't get credit where credit was probably due. The other person I wanted to point out just briefly is the cinematographer, so John Matheson. Cinematography or the photography in general in this movie is really impressive. For the most part, even though it's very frenetic, the gladiator combat, it feels very clean. It cuts between characters sometimes almost a little bit too fast, but for the most part, you have a really good understanding of geography, where people are, what's happening amongst a ton of chaos, which is which is interesting. The way that they did the composite shots, I think it's blended really well for particularly a year that was or a movie that was made in 2000. The computer effects for the most part are pretty good. There's a couple moments where there's one where I think Joaquin Phoenix is standing and you, you, you see the city of Rome behind him that stands out a little bit. So that one doesn't look that great. But overall, I think it's really impressive. In particular, I think all of the outdoor photography of the vistas, particularly when they're traveling to Algeria, and all those shots are really beautiful. And some of the shots in terms of the opening sequence, it's one of the most impressive opening sequences of a movie of all time. It has that Saving Private Ryan kind of energy, like right from the get-go when you get into it. And it's very impressive. Oh, yeah. 100% agree with that. And that's probably one of the greatest battle scenes that I've seen you know, on film. Really, yeah. really well done. It is really well shot. I think there's a lot of things that with uh, the, the color, certain scenes have a certain color. The opening scene is very blue and gray and it makes you feel yeah. cold like you're there in that forest. It switches over to very bright yellow and orange when you're in, in Africa and it's dusty and it's hot. And then Rome is bright white and brilliant and clean. And it's really, really quite interesting. What I really like, some of those sequences, the dream sequences, or when he's in sort of a haze and a fog because he has a fever. And they're done really, really well. I'm not quite sure how they do it, but it seems like they use like different film stocks and different speeds. You see sort of Maximus, he's like floating above the ground. Yeah, the floating effect. Yeah, the floating yeah. effect is, is really kind of cool. There's something that's very, it's almost crisp. It's just kind of a trippy effect. I like it. They use it to great effect when he's like rushing home, he's in a fever. And then, of course, as he's dying, I don't think I've seen anything quite like that to signify that sort of like dream. But I think it was really, really effective. Again, this was my pick. This was our first listener request. So this came in from Nick, uh, Nick H., I believe. One of the things that Nick wanted us to do was to review this film, but also take a look at the historical accuracy of this film. 
just want to hit a couple things up front. I think what Nick really wanted us to do was maybe stumble over a few Roman names, pronunciations. Nick, you're about to get your wish in that regard. And I will say that by making that recommendation, he sneakily ended up educating, certainly me, because I ended up doing some history. And now I know a lot more about, well, not a lot more. I know a bit more about some Roman history and in particular, the, the reign of Marcus Aurelius. Uh, maybe up front, I'll just throw out a few historical points, uh, things that were inaccurate and then things that were not. Uh, and as we go through the film, we can point out a couple more. First one, in terms of what did they get wrong, there's the small problem that Maximus does not exist. Maximus is not a real character. The reading on kind of the development of Maximus, there are a couple of Roman generals that are cited as examples of where they created the character. The other thing I saw referenced was there's a, a legend, and I don't know, perhaps Nick can clarify this for us, but the Senate would appoint somebody to be the guardian in, until they got through a crisis. And one of the names that's mentioned there is Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus, who was a farmer, and there was a hostile force that was attacking Rome. And so then he took control. He managed to quell the problem in about 15 days. And when he was done, he went back to being a farmer. And it was the farmer point in particular that I think they reference because over the course of the film, all Maximus really wants to do is go home and be with his family. He does not want to be a politician. He doesn't want to be the leader of Rome. I thought that was at least one source where they, they drew to create the Maximus character. I think there's a, a couple others. There's uh, Narcissus, who was Commodus's real-life murderer. Marcus Nonius uh, Macrinus, who was a trusted general and friend of Marcus Aurelius. He was consul in 154 AD. Second big issue. So Marcus Aurelius was not killed by Commodus. No. He actually died of natural causes. And also he had not previously banned the gladiatorial games. In fact, apparently he kept them active because he was trying to distract the populace from the fact that there were some economic problems. He comes across as very tired in the film and he's presented as somebody who's not supportive of the gladiatorial combat. But apparently historically, that's not the case. Right, right. He never banned them in Rome. The, the only place he actually did ban the games was in Antioch, but that was as punishment for the city's support of uh, Avidius Cassius, who was the usurper. He also, Marcus Aurelius, never wished to return the empire to a republican form of government, so they got that wrong as well. Yeah. It was interesting because I heard that Ridley Scott really wanted to portray Roman culture a lot more accurately than in other films had. And so yeah. he hired several historians and advisor as advisors on the film. And you can tell because they yep. did get a lot right. You know, they had to make some deviations just for the sake of script and, and so forth. Script and safety as well. Apparently, um, some of the historians either quit or asked not to be named in the credits because they couldn't put their name behind some of those changes. Well, I, I did see one interview with Ridley Scott where they were asking about it. He kind of smiles and says, well, we weren't making a documentary. Yeah, exactly. That's, just, that, that's how he addressed it, right? So yeah. he was going entertainment first, history second. Yeah, and I think some of those historians said, well, every filmmaker needs some form of poetic license. So yeah, yeah you're not going to, this is not a, a history class. Third example, so Commodus himself. So Commodus apparently was tall, muscular, and blonde. Apparently he's noted in history as being a big, blonde, strapping dude. He apparently did not lust after his sister. There's nothing historically that in any way references the angle they set up in the film, which, again, I think they do that to really kind of push Commodus over the edge into really creepy, truly terrible villainy. Creepy, makes your skin crawl sort of villain. Yes, because uh, history does not indicate that any time Commodus was trying to sleep with his sister. Colin, you already mentioned this, but Commodus did not die in gladiatorial combat against a fictional character. He was, in fact, strangled in his bathtub by the wrestler Narcissus. So that's how Commodus died. 
however, Commodus apparently did fight in the arena. So in, in his, his own writing, apparently he boasted of over 620 victories, but most of his victors, they believe, were paid off to submit to him. I saw multiple references to the fact that he liked to hunt animals for sport, exotic animals, and then he also killed veterans, which I thought was kind of weird. I saw at least two references to where there were wounded soldiers that had been amputated and apparently he killed them. So well, they're easy. Don't know what that was about. Easy prey. He doesn't sound like a great dude overall, honestly. No, in the film, he kills his own father, Marcus Aurelius, and and grabs power and becomes emperor. But of course, in reality, there was a peaceful transfer of power to Commodus from Marcus Aurelius. They actually reigned together for the last like a few years of Marcus Aurelius's life. Commodus reigned for another twelve years before uh, his own death. That's probably the biggest thing. One thing I will say though, Marcus Aurelius did die in Vindabona the year 180. Okay, I'm going to get two more and then we'll move on. So this one is actually probably obviously well known, but the thumbs up, thumbs down routine that the emperor uses, it's never been verified that it was a real thing. Historians do note that there was likely a specific action that the emperor took, a gesture that he made, but the whole idea of thumbs up or thumbs down is not a real thing. And apparently where that comes from, there is a painting by Jean-Léon Germain called Police Verso. He did it in 1872. And that actually is where the whole gladiator thing, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down comes from. So it's a lot of that. In, apparently the inspiration and the legend and the lore is specifically traced back to that painting. Yeah, I actually read that there. there's conjecture that it actually was the opposite, that thumbs up meant to kill him and thumbs down was like sheathe your sword. Yeah. So you would actually spare his life. Interesting. Apparently not known. Nick, if you know the answer on that one, shoot us an email. Uh, and then the last thing I would point out, the Senate was not elected democratically. And this was actually, this was a genuine learning for me. I, I did not know that. But apparently the Roman Senate was not made up of people that were elected from different districts per se, but it was actually, the, the composition was the historical leading families of Rome, as I understand it. So I don't know if you did any more research or looked at that column. I'm not going to talk out of my ass. I've done, I know a little bit of Roman history. I got about a third of the way through SPQR. Very dense book, very dense book. This time, this takes place during the Roman Empire, and it is after the fall of the Roman Republic it was in around, like, say, around 50 BC, I think. And so it, it's quite possible that when it was the Roman Republic that there were uh, elected leaders. But uh, yeah, I think that during the empire, they were not. I mean, the, the Senate was, it did not have the same power that it had of ruling Rome as, you know, as it did during the Republic times. Before the empire, before the... The Emperor, oh, I'm sorry, wrong, wrong start to quote Star Wars. The Rebel Alliance. <laughs> Before the fall of the Jedi. Yeah. That being said, as Colin mentioned, I, I read the same thing about the historians requesting that they remove their names from, <laughs> so they're, they're no longer associated as advisors. Three things that were presented, at least correctly. So one was the, the Rudus, or the wooden sword that Proximo is given uh, as a symbol of his freedom. Apparently, that was an accurate thing. That was actually something that did happen. Proximo mentions that it was granted to him by the emperor, and that wasn't always the case. So apparently, after if gladiators survived or fought a certain amount of time, they could gain their freedom, and they did not have to be given that freedom, obviously, by the emperor. The sword and the wooden sword, the rudis, was a symbol of freedom. So that apparently is accurate. Second thing, so the fact that the film opens in Germania, and Colin kind of mentioned this before, but... Marcus Aurelius, towards the end of his, I was going to call it career, but towards the end of his reign, I guess, the last thing that he was really involved in was the expansion of the empire in terms of fighting against Germania. It was the, uh, I guess, the northern frontier that represented the northern frontier of the Roman Empire at the time. So having it open in Germania and having, having it be the end of Marcus Aurelius's 
life, eh, somewhat historically accurate. And then the other thing that I would point out is that right before Maximus is about to be executed, he says Praetorian, and he says it in a very you know sort of pejorative manner. And so there's a vindictiveness there. But apparently the uh, Praetorian and the standard Roman soldier, the legions, they, they weren't fans of each other because apparently the Praetorian stayed at Rome and had a kind of a cush job when the uh, legions were out fighting. The Romans had a professional army, right? So these were paid soldiers. And so the legions were actually very loyal to the generals because those generals were also responsible for securing their retirement and <laughs> benefits and all that kind of stuff. So when I was reading about this, multiple examples of where even, I guess, some of the, you know, the ruling class was concerned about the sway that the military had, particularly because the soldiers were so loyal to the generals. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Well, Julius Caesar, the fall of the Republic, start of yep. the empire, the Praetorian Guard, weren't they like essentially the... Um... They're the Imperial Guard. So they're the guys that are in all red in Return of the Jedi. Exactly. Right? Yeah. No, but the, yeah. but literally they are. They, you know, they, they protect the emperor and the uh, right. the nobility they're like the ss yeah the, i was gonna say they're like the imperial gestapo actually yeah I mean, that's that's yeah. yeah that's that's very much their function colin unless you have anything else to add i would say this concludes the the real dmc history portion i love geography so i'm really i was really interested in where these actual locations were so vindabona where that where the the film opens up with the battle against these german tribes the fort of vindabona was a real thing, and it is located on modern-day Vienna in Austria, right on the banks of the Danube River. Maximus's home, which is in Spain, in Hispania back then, is called Trujillo. It's in western Trujillo. Spain. Yeah. When he's taken as a slave and they travel to Africa, to uh, Zuchabar, that's actually near uh, modern-day Algiers in Algeria. Close to, was it Melania, Algeria today, right? Because I did the yeah. same research. <laughs> Yep. So you want, you want to talk about the, the geography problem on that really quick, or do you want to talk about that when we're going through the movie? Do you mean how long it took Maximus to uh, to travel from Vindabona to his home? Let's just touch on this since you brought up the geography. Cause, yeah, because right? so, I did the math. Yeah, so did I. So let's, <laughs> let's see what you came up with, right? Okay, so he's fighting in what would be modern-day Austria. So he grabs a couple of horses, and he tries to run back to his house in Spain. The actual distance he'd have to travel there would be 1,600 miles, basically, or 1,650 miles. Yeah, I've, I've got it in kilometers. It's about 2,500 kilometers if you're, right. if you're walking. I was wondering, actually, if Google Maps had like a directions by horseback option, but they don't. So I had, to, figure, I had to do a little figuring on my own. At a minimum, what I saw projected was it would be three to four weeks probably for him to travel that distance. I got four to six weeks. Four to six weeks, okay. Yeah, because so he wasn't walking, he was on horseback. But apparently one source suggested that a fit horse can do about 40 to 50 miles a day, which is 65 to 80 kilometers. And it can do it that long for about four or five days until it needs a day off. You know, that's roughly four to six weeks. Right. You also have to look at, he's injured, so it's a little bit rough for him. He doesn't have any food or water, so he's going to have to stop. If you look at his hair, it grows significantly over that time. So I figure it's probably about a month. After he gets home, the, the next step for him is actually to be captured and then taken as a slave to Zuccobar. That is 862 miles. That would also require that you take a ship across the Alboran Sea to get there. If you stayed landlocked, it was going to be months before you ever got to Algeria. Certainly from a historical accuracy or just a reality accuracy, Maximus does appear to travel quite a distance, you know, versus what is presented during the, on the screen. <laughs> I mean, they make it seem like it's just a, a day or two, but I think they, a couple you know, days. obviously, you know, they're not going to 
waste a whole lot of time uh, doing that. We knew it was a long way. The thing that I found that was most confusing about the whole trip back to his home. So we assume that he's going to Spain and he does say that his his home is in uh, Trujillo or Trujillo, as we say in Spanish. When he gets home, his home is quite clearly in Tuscany. I'm confused. He's supposed to be in Spain. This looks like Tuscany. Where is he? So I had to look it up and it turns out that they did film that his home in Tuscany. Why? You you go to the trouble of making it look like he's riding through these desert portions of Spain to get home. Why right. not use a you know a, a house that was actually filmed somewhere in Spain that had Spanish architecture and and Spanish style trees? I was scratching my head a little bit. They just needed to find a property that had a very long driveway leading up to it so that little kids could get trampled by horses. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that was awful. Want to wrap back to the cast a little bit? Just talk about the cast? Absolutely. So I mentioned this before, but Russell Crowe just anchors the shit out of this movie as a from a performance. Just incredibly charismatic. The the range of emotion as he's going through the movie. You know, sometimes he's presented as there's a little bit of a almost like a smart ass edge to him, but he's of course incredibly ferocious. And I just think it's just a fantastic characterization. I love him in this role. Yeah, totally. This was at a point where I think sort of the height of my Russell Crowe man crush had its peak. He just nails it. He inhabits the character. I read a, a little bit about maybe some other people who were considered. First of all, apparently Mel Gibson was offered the lead, but he was too old. He was like 43, so he turned it down. I could totally see this being a Mel Gibson movie. Yeah, just look at Braveheart if you think it's, is it going to work or not? Right. Yeah. But Russell Crowe definitely pulls it off better than Gibson could have. Oh, completely. He's just amazing. I think they also considered Hugh Jackman and Antonio Banderas. Antonio Banderas yeah. being obvious because he's actually Spanish. Now, Russell Crowe is just so good. But I do have a question for you. because So this came out in 2000. Yeah. And I quite clearly remember thinking... So before we knew about this movie, this is probably in 1999, the X-Men movie was coming out. And they were ca- they were filming it and casting for it. I remember us thinking like, oh my God, if they could only cast Russell Crowe as Wolverine, it would be such yeah. a badass movie. Yeah. And then they didn't. They cast... It was a Dugray Scott. And I was very disappointed that he dro- he had to drop out for some reason and then he cast this guy named Hugh Jackman who I didn't know. We had no idea who he was at the time. Who really. fucking killed it <laughs> yeah. as, as Wolverine. I'm glad that the choices that they made that it ended up that way because I love Hugh Jackman as Wolverine and Russell Crowe is just an amazing uh, Maximus. Where did you first notice? Like, what do you what do you remember in terms of you know seeing Russell Crowe in a performance and going like, oh, I kind of like this guy. Ah, okay. Well. One of my burning questions is, what's your favorite Russell Crowe movie? I think the answer to that, to your question, I'd seen L.A. Confidential, and I was like, who is this guy? I really, really like him. And then I started seeing some of the other stuff. And so it really sort of started in the the late 90s. What about you? So for me, it's pretty clear it's the quick and the dead. That's a very interesting, nuanced performance because he's somebody who's a former gunfighter and he's trying to go straight he sort of has this kind of inner torment because he's actually really good at what he does as a gunfighter but he doesn't want to do it anymore there are some slight parallels to maximus in terms of that character i remember seeing him in that performance and watching him interact with sharon stone and i'm thinking there's something about this guy like he really I, i was very drawn to his performance when i was watching that movie and he was very memorable to me and then pretty much anything that was moving forward, I, you know, I'm like, oh, hey, Russell Crowe's in it. I definitely want to see it. So I, now I have to go back and amend what I said, because you're right. I, I love The Quick and the Dead. 
And I think that yeah. is actually where I first noticed him. But I think in, in LA Confidential, that's where I really, it was like, oh, this guy again. And I really, really yeah. loved him. Let me ask you, what are your favorite Russell Crowe movies? Certainly this one, The Quick and the Dead, and LA Confidential are the ones that immediately jump to mind. How about you? So I, I ranked them LA Confidential and then Gladiator. But they're really like both 1A, 1B. The Insider and Proof of Life, which I watched again like about a year ago, which I was surprisingly good. I couldn't really realize how good it was because I didn't only seen it once before, but it's really, really quite good. So if you haven't seen it again, watch it. And then Master and Commander and The Quick and the Dead. Oh, Master and Commander is a really good movie. Yeah. That's definitely cool. Yeah. How about moving on to Joaquin Phoenix? So I mentioned my interpretation of what his performance was, which is, I think it's a really good performance. And I think that he plays the role really well. I, but I do think that they're kind of asking him to be a little bit of the super villainy villain, right? There's a little, there's a little bit of that. Not, not quite over the top, because it's not like he's going crazy. But and it's a really good performance. I, th- I think he is, does it really well. I just think that it's, I don't know, maybe the incest thing is what pushed it over the edge for me. I mean, the fact that he's trying to sleep with his sister, uh, it's just a little bit I tell slightly you, unnecessary. The, the scene where they're like sitting on the bed and he, open your mouth. You know, he's got his fingers in her mouth. Ah, it's just like, ugh. I I keep trying to think about, how do I describe his portrayal of Commodus? He's very ambitious, and he's also very amoral. But I think really what what resonates and what I think about is just he's he's creepy. And it's hard to put my finger on it. I mean, he, he definitely stands out. It's a really, really good performance. I think in the hands of another actor, it would have been very different. There's sort of like a disgusting smarminess that sort of shows up yeah, I was there. trying to think like smarmy. Well, that's not really smarmy. Slimy. That's oh, not really slimy. Because yeah. he's just unpredictable. He's good. He's really good. Yeah. Apparently, uh, they also considered Jude Law for the for the role in it. You, you don't think that would have worked? No. I, I like Jude Law. I don't know. I just don't think it would have been as good. How about Connie Nielsen? who plays uh, Lucille. I've always been underwhelmed. She's recognizable, but she's also a little flat is what it feels like. And and maybe her character is not given that much to do. This character in particular does not make a big impact on screen. I have nothing against Connie Nielsen in this role. I've just somehow always felt underwhelmed. And I look back through her credits. People today probably know her best as Wonder Woman's mother, right? Queen uh, Hippolyta. What I immediately think of her now is like raising her sword, Amazons. (laughs) Right. And I do like her in that role, by the way. Great screen presence for that particular character. Yeah. But aside from that, like, I don't really... She doesn't jump out at me as, as an actress that I even really recognize other than a few roles here and there. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Right in the middle of our casting conversation, we'd like to welcome Marcus to the podcast. Marcus, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Uh, Russell Crowe is in Gladiator. Does a good job with it. I think uh, he should get an Academy Award. Welcome aboard. Marcus, do you like <laughs> movies about gladiators? No. <laughs> I've, I've decided no i do not marcus have you ever seen a grown man naked <laughs> uh hey scraps is pass. a boy dog <laughs> i believe dave you were gonna steer the yes. conversation over to oliver reed oliver reed so this is his final film performance he's in here as proximo i'd almost give him the mvp of supporting characters i think he is great in this movie i, I don't have that much of a history with him i think is it a personal history the, the only movie that I, I think I remember him from explicitly is The Three Musketeers. He was quite good in that. But I think mostly I, I just know him by reputation as being a bit of a hellraiser and being very abrasive. I think it was he was on David Letterman sometime during the 80s and it did not go well. Like he was a total <laughs> asshole. 
And David Letterman was like really caught off guard. That's really all I know about Oliver Reed. He's fantastic in this. He is so good. My favorite role is him as Frank in Tommy, the Who uh, documentary. Oh, right, right, right. I hate Tommy. <laughs> sorry, 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 Jim. Recognize him more for some of the genre stuff. Like he's in The Brood. You guys ever see The Brood? No. I think he's, yeah, he's well known for that movie. He really commands the screen. So when he is making the speeches to the gladiators of... I did not pay good money for you for your company. I paid it so that I could profit from your death. And as your mother was there at your beginning, so I shall be there at your end. And when you die, and die you shall, your transition shall be to the sound of... Gladiators, I salute you. He does just a really good job of communicating somebody who is enraptured with that experience, right? I, I think that he just communicates that on screen really effectively. Yeah, he's he, he's so good. He's got a reputation as a hellraiser. Yeah. We first see him and, and he's negotiating a deal with this uh, slave trader. Apparently he uh, grabbed the actor's balls and said, are you a method actor? <laughs> like, and you are now. <laughs> so, wow. Oh, really? He really, yeah. he really grabbed that guy by the balls? Yeah, he, he sure yeah. did. If I, was, if I was that guy, I would say, excuse me, cut. I, we need to talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> he told Ridley Scott that he, you know, he'd do whatever he wanted, but after five o'clock, that time was his, meaning it's time for cocktails. Where was Richard Harris when he needed him? Totally. The last thing I want to say about Oliver Reed is that he died during the end of filming of this movie. And they had to spend quite a bit of money using like digital special effects to finish off some scenes. There's about two minutes of film that is not him, but it is a body double and computer generated face imaging. They actually had insurance that would allow them, if someone had died, specifically him, <laughs> that they'd be able to go back and reshoot everything. Hmm. It was such a, a trying filming that they filmmakers decided they, they couldn't do that to the cast and crew. So they opted to uh, to do it with using uh, CGI. I did not notice it. The rumor yeah. is he dropped dead after challenging some sailors to drinking and he died in a pub. Is that really the, the rumor? Yeah. I heard it yeah. was a heart attack, but I would not doubt that at all. Well, if you're going to go out, that's, I guess, maybe not a bad way to do it. His death did force them to do a little rewriting. Apparently, in the original script, Maximus was supposed to fight Proximo in the Colosseum. And before he, Maximus fight Commodus. That would have been interesting to see. Would have been kind of unnecessary, though. I don't think, I don't think you needed one more gladiatorial No, I, I don't think you did, but it, it certainly would have been interesting. Uh, maybe it's better. My than money that. would have been on uh, Russell Crowe there. <laughs> I think Maximus is taking down the old guy. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. so too. <laughs> also considered for Proximo's role, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I guess as a former gladiator, maybe that works, but yeah. not not the rest of it. Doesn't quite have the acting chops. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, well, so how about Richard Harris? English Bob. English Bob himself, who keeps coming out of retirement. When I was looking at one of the behind the scenes documentaries, he was saying that, yeah, he keeps trying to retire, but what happens is these scripts keep showing up and then he is he doesn't want to read them because he doesn't want to find a good part. And then he said, he opened this one and he's like, oh yeah, I got to do this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he said walking onto the set for the first time he was just in awe of everything so and he also said that working with russell crowe was a great experience he said that there was just you know tons of humility and he apparently really really enjoyed this shoot he's only on i don't know what is it like maybe 10 minutes of screen time or something but he really makes an impression and you really buy him as marcus aurelius at least somebody who is old <laughs> tired and leader who's kind of at the end of his life he has this regal air to him that he projects effortlessly and i just think it's a great performance yeah, I totally agree. He's he he just knocks it out of the park. He's Richard Harris. 
He's just right. such an amazing actor. Also, he didn't have to go anywhere. They shot those scenes in the UK. So he, he was lucky. He didn't have to go to Malta. And apparently yeah, he and he and Russell Crowe became like really good friends on the set. Yeah. Unfortunately, he, he died, what, two years later? Meanwhile, apparently uh, Russell Crowe and Oliver Reed, not so good friends uh, on oh, the really? set. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Apparently Oliver Reed took a, an immediate dislike to Russell Crowe. I am not surprised. Like I said, Oliver Reed got a bit of a reputation. <laughs> Oliver Reed, a bit of a dick is what we're hearing. <laughs> so Jaiman Hansu, the, I guess it's a Numidian tribesman. Yeah. Uh, Juba. What I find interesting about his character is after the first gladiator fight where he's chained together with Maximus, you kind of get the sense that they're going to be a little bit closer. Juba at the end, it's, you know, he, he takes an action kind of on behalf of Maximus and all that. I was surprised, I guess, that they did not bring them together, at least on the combat going forward in the movie. What about the Battle of the Carthage? At one point you see Maximus dive and he pushes Hagen out of the way. Mm-hmm. You don't see him doing a ton of stuff with Juba in that fight oh. well, that, I, that I recall anyways. Is it really necessary? They have more of like this emotional connection. You know, they both have lost their families. That's the way that they really connect. Really good performance, I have to say. Jaiman Hansu, great. And he what, he was in Amistad before this, right? Uh, he was It was Amistad was before this. Yeah, yeah. okay. David Schofield plays Falco, which I believe is a direct tribute to the Austrian electronic band that did uh, Der Commissar. And, and, and uh, Rock Me Amadeus. Right? Rock Me Amadeus? Yeah, Rock Me Amadeus. <laughs> yeah. It was a thank you, Taco, for that stirring tribute to Falco. <laughs> <laughs> So Spencer Treat Clark, who plays Lucius, Lucilla's son. Do you recognize him from anything? He did look familiar. So Spencer Treat Clark, you might remember him from Unbreakable. He played Bruce Willis's son. Oh, okay. Reprised the role in uh, Glass. He was also in Mystic River. He's gone on to having a really good career. He like made the transition from child star to adult actor. Good for him. Um, the one thing about Spencer Treat Clark is that specifically like in this movie, that for some reason, he just reminds me of Julianne Moore. I don't know what it is. <laughs> All right. I just think of Julianne Moore every time I see him. I can't help you with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> also want to call out Derek Jacoby, who plays Senator Gracchus. Great, great eyebrows. <laughs> Wait, so is that who you're talking about as the mentat? Yeah, the, the mentat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So Derek Jacoby, long, long career. He played Emperor Claudius in the 76 BBC adaptation of I, Claudius. So he's actually played Commodus's ancestors. He looked very comfortable in the genre. Yeah, well, he's like a long-time like, royal shakespeare trained actor. actor. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then the last person I wanted to call out is Sven Ole Thorsen, who plays Tigris of Gaul, who's the gladiator that comes out of retirement. Right. He's got that white mask. Do you know who that is? No. no. He's Thorgrim, one of Thulsa Doom's henchmen in Conan the Barbarian. You're shaking your head. I don't think I've seen uh, well, you, Conan. You've never seen Conan the Barbarian, dude? I don't Who think are so, you? Who? Jesus Christ. Like, what are we doing? Why are we doing a podcast with you? <laughs> <laughs> That's why I show right. up late and unprepared. <laughs> All right. Well, Dave, you know, what I'm, you know who I'm talking about. I would not have recognized him, obviously, but now that you mention it, yes. I am a big fan of Conan the Barbarian, the film. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, uh, Lou Ferrigno was lobbying for the role of Tigris of Gaul, but uh, no. They went with Sven Ole. All right, well, I think we can just kind of jump into the movie and start going through it. Mentioned this when it was just Colin and I earlier, but this movie has an incredible opening with the Roman legions in Germania. Marcus Aurelius is there, and 
this is, you know, setting up to be the last great battle. By the way, the costuming in this movie is awesome. They built something like four to 5,000, you know, sets of armor for this movie. They had 2,000 extras that were out in the scene. They built 26,000 arrows just to set 10,000 of them on fire, by the way. When they were talking to Ridley Scott and they were doing location scouting, apparently there was a forest in, I guess it was Surrey, England, and they needed to clear it. They were going to burn down 400 acres. And Ridley Scott was like, yep, I can work with that. No problem. I know. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> There are several things about this that I think really work. So, you know, one is you see Maximus and he's looking at a bird and you see a bird fly away. He kind of smiles and there's a little bit of a wistful moment. So you know that he's not like some bloodthirsty killer. He's a professional soldier. And then they have him walking through the lines and and the respect that he shows to his men and the respect that the men are giving to him. I think that's all great. Some of the opening dialogue when he's talking to his troop. Hold the line. Stay with me. You find yourself alone. Riding in green fields with the sun on your face. Do not be troubled. For you are in Elysium. And you're already dead! (laughs) Brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity. The dialogue is obviously very flowery, but I think it's very effective. The battlefield visuals themselves, when they finally cut loose with all the catapults and arrows and all that kind of stuff it it looks very almost modern so i think that opening scene is just pretty fantastic i think they quite literally unleash hell costumes are amazing what a way to open up a movie this just really gets you going by the way i I really love the shot that i think it opens the film and it probably i think it might close the film as well you know maximus brushing his hand along the the stalks of wheat i don't know what it is it's such an effective very sort of iconic shot Yeah, this is a man, like you said, he's a professional soldier. He's going to lead. At heart, he is a farmer and a family man. All he wants to do is get this battle over with, win it, and then go home to his family. There's a dog that is with Maximus, so obviously the dog's loyal, and and even the dog is involved in the battle itself, right? They must have set that up as a way that they were going to put some sort of a wrapper on that. The first script might have had Maximus escaping and then coming back with the soldiers. He marches on Rome, I think, with soldiers. That was the original version of the script. Kind of wondering if they set up the dog so that when he escaped the city, like all of a sudden the dog, you know, runs up to him and recognizes him. I just, I thought the dog was there and then gone. So I think that was a plot device that was intended for something well, else. Unless the, the dog turned into Cicero and, and he's the one who, who fulfills <laughs> that role. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, it, it does seem like you're thinking the significance of the dog and then you just never see the dog again. The other thing about this scene that's kind of interesting. So Marcus Aurelius is there. So Richard Harris is observing the battle. Um, he has one kind of funny moment on screen where you know, towards the end of the battle, when the battle's over, it's almost like he has a small orgasm. I'm not sure exactly what's going on with his face and that, but he's kind of like... Argh. I think that's supposed to signify like that we have won the battle. Now we have like peace throughout the empire. <laughs> but yeah, whatever. Want to talk trebuchets or no? Well, so, so that, yeah, that was one thing that also in terms of historical, uh, historical inaccuracies, the, the weapons that they show up with in terms of the catapults, the little more the advanced, trebuchet, yeah. It's, yeah. well, and they also say that they would not be used for this type of combat, right? Yeah. Because they, they couldn't, they couldn't get them as easily to the, the location, right? So they, they were more used in siege combat. That's a Mark seven trebuchet. They would really only use, only use a Mark three trebuchet in that situation. The, the trebuchet, actually, the, there's two types. There's a, uh, like a man-powered one, which dates from China, 4th century BC. And so what they had was more of a torsion catapult, but that wasn't invented for another two, 300 years. 
I mean, the Roman catapult is called an Oninger. First mention is around 353 AD. Marcus now drops the mic and leaves. <laughs> got my trebuchet knowledge out. I'm a gone. The Onager was a advancement on the Scorpio weapon, which was like a large crossbow. So that, that Scorpio was around at that point, but it was more of a crossbow, more of a man-sized crossbow. Like a, they take two men to pull back the torsion part of it. Well, if you want to nitpick around anachronisms and uh, timeline discrepancies, apparently the uh, the German tribes were wearing clothing from the Stone Age. <laughs> not from like 180 AD, but I didn't go, I didn't delve too deeply into that. One other thing that I'd recommend, if go back and watch the initial charge, when the two lines hit each other, there's about one to two seconds where you see a couple of the Germania troops, they have a big smile on their face and they're, they like come together with, with the Roman guys. Hey, yeah, that was a good run. Like there's, there's just, it stands out a little bit after you see it. The scope and the scale of the scene is just crazy. I mean, it's it's really impressive. And I guess they did burn down, I guess, 100 acres of forest when they were filming, is what they said. Or Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> so you see Commodus show up. Have I missed it? Have I missed the battle? You have missed the war. Father, congratulations. I shall sacrifice 100 bulls to honor your triumph. Save the bulls. Honor Maximus. He won the battle. Wrapping back to Richard Harris, he says things again that are very flowery and they're very effective when a man sees his end he wants to know there was some purpose to his life how will the world speak my name in years to come will i be known as the philosopher the warrior the tyrant or will i be the emperor who gave rome back her true self there was once a dream that was rome you could only whisper it Anything more than a whisper, and it would vanish. It was so fragile. And I fear that it will not survive the winter. Maximus, let us whisper now, together, you and I. Some of the lines of dialogue, I think, just work really well and give him that regal air. Commodus kills him. I assume in the movie that you know that Maximus suspects that Commodus killed him, right? Of course, he, no, he... he he yeah, basically yeah. says it to him, yeah. But oh yeah, yeah, because Commodus is basically asking for his loyalty at that point, and Maximus tells him basically to go fuck off all without yeah, using yeah. those words, and then storms out. Commodus has the Praetorian Guard take Maximus, and I think that the command is to ride until was it ride until sunrise, and then execute him. That's the plan. Right. My question there is: Do you really think that Maximus, with five thousand of his loyal soldiers, right outside within yelling distance? You don't think that maybe Maximus makes a move to uh, try and get them back up there? Well, that's why Quintus was there, to make sure that that didn't happen. By the way, Quintus, what a bitch. <laughs> He's supposed to be loyal to uh, Maximus, and he just turns. Guess who's going to be the leader of the Felix Legion now? So the Praetorian, they take Maximus out. I had a question about this one because they're out in the field and they're going to execute him. Praetorian guard has the sword over his head as if he's going to chop off Maximus's head. But then Maximus asks for a soldier's death and he, and he goes around and he puts the sword right up against his spine in the back. Yeah, yeah I didn't understand that. Why is that better? And would you want to die that way? Because I think I would just take the, the chop. I don't know. It seemed like an odd choice. What is he going to do? Go through his like shoulder blades into like his... Or directly through his spine to sever it or something? I don't know. I don't know. I think the head chop would be a better... I was thinking it was going to be sever the uh, spinal cord, but then you'd just suffocate, bleed out. So Yeah, it looked like he was going to stab it into him, like in between his shoulder blades and into his torso. Yeah, Maybe like the know. decapitations, you can't have an open casket or something. You got your head 
decapitated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the thing I had questions about was how do you, how do you grab a blade in midair? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Well, he he artfully got out of that situation. He, he gets a wound in his shoulder, right? Yeah. How do you get a a wound in your shoulder when the only the armor, armor you're wearing is shoulder armor? Right. <laughs> It didn't make a lot of sense to me, but whatever. And I immediately thought of Dave worrying about the uh, nearest born and the and the nicks and cuts and scrapes. Like, I mean, that's going to get infected, right? <laughs> did I previously have a neosporin obsession that I don't recall? You did. You mentioned that in the uh, the Descent podcast about oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> them getting scraped up. And uh... <laughs> does anybody have any hydrogen peroxide? <laughs> Got flush that out, man. There was something that we sort of skimmed over before Marcus Aurelia is murdered by Commodus. He tells Maximus that he wants him to take control as like consul and restore the empire to the Republic. Of course, never happened. I love the whole idea. The dying ruler transfers his power to an unlikely person and does it essentially on his deathbed or right before he dies. And he does it without any witnesses because we all know how that ends. Robert Baratheon... I'm looking right at you, buddy. <laughs> Very similar storyline. Yeah. Bring, bring a few people in. You see Maximus, right? So he grabs two horses and he runs back to his house. <laughs> it literally, it was almost the, the, the time was like him running back to his house. I was, it's, sorry, your phrase, your choice of phrase is just hilarious. Yeah. He ran home, but it was like, oh, actually, Maximus now goes on a journey of four weeks. <laughs> Maximus arrives home and before Maximus gets there you see the Praetorian guard the, the first thing they do is they just trample his son right in the driveway his son's kind of running down he's like oh hey dad's home and then the horses just plow him over so that's that's kind of a tough landing for that kid and then they attack and they kill his wife they're hanging and they've been set on fire and all of Maximus's servants have been killed and set on fire and the fields have been burned I just want to uh, praise Commodus on his thoroughness when it comes to taking somebody out because, man, it's like he really did a, a number on, on Maximus. Here's what I wrote in my notes on that. That is some cold, cold shit. <laughs> he also just went around and slaughtered the surrounding neighborhoods just to uh, really send a message. One thing about this scene, so uh, if you recall in the In Line of Fire podcast, I did praise Dylan McDermott for his saliva work after he was shot by... By uh, Booth. This is probably the Russell Crowe does some of the finest saliva combo snot work that I've seen because as he's sitting there grabbing the feet of his daughter and his son, you know, you see what appears to be a good, it's, a, it's about a good seven or eight inches of saliva kind of hanging out and swinging in the wind and it connects to the snot line coming out of his nose. It's just, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really effective. I, I, it's I, good, I get also, good saliva work. Also, in my notes, I said uh, Russell Crowe is, is really going to 11 with the snot bubbles. But it totally, it totally works. It totally works. It works. You buy it. I mean, you buy that he's pretty sad. The plot hole question I have here is, so let's assume that the Praetorian Guard followed Commodus' instructions, right? And said, okay, we're going to ride until dawn, and then we're going to execute Maximus. Maximus kills everybody who's there. So nobody is able to get back to Commodus to tell him that Maximus has escaped. We, they, for the, they just basically know that all those guys are gone. I can answer your question. Maximus has at least a, a, a one to two day head start ahead of Commodus. There's no way that Commodus would have, could have gotten to Maximus's house unless there was some messaging, some way that Commodus could have sent a message. Could he send a raven to somebody? Yeah. How do they get the message? I was thinking the same thing. Like, can I answer? Yeah. Yeah. Can you? Yes, I can. Fresh horses. That's it. Was that that Molly Ringwald movie? Yeah. <laughs> was Molly Ringwald one of those people? 
I mean, she is she, a she, cold, cold bitch. Anyway, that's how they do it. Roman camps along the way. They get fresh horses and they, they continue on. That's how he they can get ahead of him. It's not a nitpicky thing. It's very hmm. believable. I don't know. I don't know if I'm 100% convinced, but I'll, I'll take your word well, for it. Trust me, okay? Just trust me. Okay. Yeah, and then Maximus is you know feeling a little sad, so he lays down to take a nap. Maximus is captured, and this is where he's taken to Zucabar, which actually is modern-day northern Algeria. You do meet Proximo. So now uh, you have Maximus as part of a group of slaves, and they're being tested to see are they going to be a decent gladiator, in which case you get a red dot, or are they just going to be fodder, and they're going to get killed, in which case you get a yellow dot. And Maximus refuses to fight, so they give him a sword, and he just throws it down and walks away. And this might actually be the best fight in the movie, I think, the gladiator fight in Zucabar. Where they're chained together? Yeah, where they're chained together, because there's a really cool scene where they're inside the tunnel, and they're getting ready to go out. And the gladiators that are there all have, all the costuming is, is actually pretty cool. There's two things that I noticed. So one is, there appears to be an extra from Repo Man. <laughs> right before the gates open, when you look at him, if there's some dude that has a total like punk rock spike hair. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then he steps out, and I think it's the guy that kills him. But what I didn't realize in this is they are actually fighting the Minotaur from Time Bandits. Did you guys see that? <laughs> so I, w- I was going to say, like, does it, do you really want to fight the gladiator with a giant bull's head? I, I'd be yeah. like the guy in front of Maximus. I'd be, like, peeing myself. It, what the guy did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's a fun moment, actually. So one of the guys who's, you know, waiting to go out into the arena just <laughs> pees himself. And you see, you see Maximus just sort of derisively step back, like, you know, fuck this guy. <laughs> just like, that's a great moment. Well, whoever ran out first also caught the mace. The ball to that face was just like, oh, my God. I think the punk yeah. rock dude takes the mace, like, right to the face. Yeah, he does. Brutal. Two seconds. That's it's it. Not it's even that. Over. It's like half a second. It's like the door opens and bam, right in the face. Whack. Maybe that's a good way to go. You know, he didn't even see it coming. One thing that is actually really interesting is how they built that arena. Because they actually went and used some techniques from hundreds of years ago in terms of creating bricks out of the soil in the area. And they used that to partially build the arena. So they built it out of local natural materials. Like mud and grass? Bricks. Yeah, it's it's and and they you know they formed these bricks and they used it to build a lot of the Coliseum structure. All the set decoration and set design and production design, crazy impressive. I'm really surprised that they only spent was a hundred and something million dollars. Like, hundred three million. Hundred three million. If it was done today, it'd be like a, first of all, it'd be like three hundred and fifty million dollars, and it would be eighty percent CGI. Right. Maybe they should go back to making movies using practical effects and real people to build these sets because it seems like maybe it's actually a lot cheaper. Yeah, it looks a lot better yeah. for sure. Absolutely. It oh, looks, looks great. Looks, it looks amazing. looks great. I have to say that during this scene, I was very, very impressed by the teamwork of Maximus and Juba. The other thing I liked during that is Hagen, the large Germanian guy, mm-hmm. who his solution to the uh, to the fact that he has the guy chained with him is just to cut his arm off. I like that. I thought that was a good move. <laughs> that was pretty effed up that they send them out there chained together, right? And I think they give one guy a shield and the other guy a sword. And so you're basically right. two guys fighting as one. You know, Juba and uh, Maximus. Super do. hard, though. Yeah. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, near impossible. As I say, I think it's a good uh, team building exercise. I think you should try it at your work. I think it definitely would uh, improve, <laughs> improve coordination and uh, collaboration. Uh, each of those guys, there was one, one red dot and one yellow dot. So, <laughs> so who's, who's the red dot and who's the yellow lift dot? Up the, uh, you know, lift up the underperformers, right? But that's going to alert the entire team, though, to who's underperforming. <laughs> so, <laughs> Go around the office and start giving people yellow and red dots. <laughs> It's like, yeah. Uh-oh, Dave's coming yeah. by with the paint. <laughs> you yellow daughter. <laughs> There's a second fight here. So the Spaniard is gaining lots of fame. 
Maximus comes out and he's just sort of, you can see he's tired and annoyed with the, with the gladiator experience. And so rather than making a big show of it, he just goes out there in a second fight and just slaughters like seven or eight guys in 90 seconds or something like that. And that's where he does this, the famous. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? pissed off about the whole his whole situation i imagine the lower ranking gladiator circuit is very similar to like minor league ball travels tough they're on the buses all the time it's just like i want to be in a good mood (laughs) (laughs) all right anything else you guys want to say about that whole scene or those two fights no they're just they're really fun anytime you throw in some guy who's got a basically a secret identity and he's a total ringer and you throw him in with all these other guys who you think are badasses and then this guy, he's going to show him who a real badass is. I love that. Absolutely. Just lap it it's up. It's a great plot device. It is, it is. It's absolutely amazing. During this time, they do switch back to Rome. Commodus returns home at one point to tons of pageantry and the effects and how they lay out that whole scene is, is actually pretty cool. And plagiarized music. Yeah, plagiarized music. Of course, they show the, the Colosseum itself, right, as, as if it were the fully built Colosseum. And the scale of it is actually very impressive. It, they start the the repeated storyline of Commodus trying to hit on his sister over a couple of periods throughout the movie. So if there's one thing you could cut out of this movie, you could probably cut maybe one or two scenes of the behind the scenes with Commodus, I think. No, because he's just so creepy that it can't just be, oh, revenge. It's got to be like revenge with a little bit more, a little bit of mustard. And that mustard is Commodus's well, I don't creepiness. know why he did it with his sister. Like, isn't the, what actually happened to Commodus is uh, his mistress is one who ended up killing him. There was a storyline already. His mistress ended up poisoning him, but then he didn't die from that. And then she hired someone else to kill him or whatever. It doesn't really matter. I mean, the whole thing with Lucius, you know, Lucius is actually dead. He died well before Commodus was, uh, became emperor. But, you know, yeah. it's a movie. That's why I think it's a weird storyline to focus on where they could have done something more to keep him creepy and kind of align with uh, reality. The other thing that they talk about frequently is the fact that she had a relationship with Maximus before at some point in the past. And so that's brought up in reference, but it it doesn't really ever necessarily go anywhere. I guess it has to give you maybe an explanation as to why she would be willing to risk her position by trying to help Maximus escape at the end, I guess. I mean, that's, but of course she has her own desires there, right? Which is with Commodus out of the way, then Lucius is the next in line to be the emperor. Yeah, I thought it was weird too, because they both mentioned their sons and they both have eight-year-old sons. So I was like trying to piece together your son, her son. Like, is it like, I didn't quite understand like initially. Like, I thought maybe they were hinting at that too, but it never really yeah. paid off or went anywhere. It's just coincidence. Yeah. yeah. So Proximo decides that with the, the games back on, because Commodus, when he returns to Rome, he declares, I think it's 150 days of games straight in honor of Marcus Aurelius. This is probably the big, maybe the central, maybe the piece of the film, right? This is the Battle of Carthage. Uh, this is where... Russell Crowe gets to pick up the most the badass helmet that he has, where he looks really cool in it. They go out and they send all the guys, you know, presumably to their death, right? That's the whole idea. They're just going to be out there and get slaughtered. I do like the fact that when they're out there, 
Maximus asked them at that point, hey, has anybody been in the army? You want to stay together? But then by the end of the battle, Maximus is giving them military orders. He's like, form a column over there, form a column over there. And everybody's doing exactly what Maximus wants. Now he's an effective leader. I'll, I'll give him that. I'd follow him. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I heard a couple of guys say like that they were with him, but I'm not sure if they were all soldiers. So I, I sort of questioned a little bit, but it was great. I mean, it was just awesome to see how they just form a unit and then just really kicked the shit out of Scipio Africanus uh, soldiers. They did not know what they were in for. That was no. just fantastic. Yeah, it's an impressive action sequence. I mean, yeah. the, the, and of course, it's impossible to watch that and not think of Ben-Hur. You guys are familiar with oh, the, yeah. uh, the Ben here because of the chariots right? and everything. Right. Yeah. I personally love the, uh, the scene of the woman soldier who gets sawed in half by the wheel spit. Yeah. Uh, that was, that was pretty great. <laughs> it's just like on her just, knees and oof. it just comes and like, whoosh. <laughs> it's like, uh Oh, <laughs> the slaves win the battle of Carthage. Shouldn't the barbarians lose the battle? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but then he goes down and this is where he meets Maximus. This is where he reveals his identity. And, he, he, and he spins he, and he has this great moment of dialogue. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance this life or the next that's a, like a truly truly great moment in this movie and you just have chills down your spine when he like reveals his true identity it's just it's an awesome moment Commodus or joaquin phoenix in his acting the, the moment of surprise when he sees maximus is actually he does that really well no oh, yeah <laughs> but he's like oh, oh shit what <laughs> yeah why is he still alive it vexes me I'm truly vexed. There's not a ton of humor in this movie, but I, I do think at that point, don't you think Ridley Scott was having a little fun with the, uh, with the dialogue? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, that's, he, he's goofing around. Right? I mean, that's like one of those lines I, I remembered like immediately from Commodus. And I think that was making the rounds too, like after this movie came out. I'm vexed. I'm truly vexed. The other thing I thought was kind of fun about this is after this scene, they go back and they're showing the gladiators, you know, everybody's you know, kind of gets coming down or, or maybe they're going through the market and... There's a group of them that are just playing with a cobra. Do you guys need adrenaline all the time? Is this like the point break crew <laughs> yeah. of, uh, of Roman yeah. times? I mean, it's like, you know, they have to live on 100% pure adrenaline. How are you going to come down from a huge fight where you survived, you barely survived? I'm going to go play with a cobra. Yeah. <laughs> like, I want to know the rules of that gambling game. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to play Texas Hold'em or Cobra Poker? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so there's a snake curled up, and I think they're they're supposed to try to drop rocks like inside the snake's body without getting bit, and it just, just it just goes by really quickly. But yeah, they start the game by playing thumper on the box the uh, snakes in. <laughs> <laughs> they try to no, rile them all riled up. Hey, yeah. I know we I know we have a, a cobra in the middle of the table here, but why don't we try to piss it off first? <laughs> no. Oh my god! So this is where so Lucius does come, and he wants to you know he wants to meet the Spaniard Lucilla. Is that her name? Yeah, Lucilla. sorry, Commodus' sister. She comes and visits Russell Crowe at one point as well. What do you think her character is? Is she just afraid of Commodus or is she genuinely yeah. invested in Maximus? No, I mean, she's afraid of Commodus. And she, I think, you know, she does have this previous relationship with Maximus. You know, her husband's dead. She's a widow. And I think she you know, truly would love to be able to be with him. She is the good child of Marcus Aurelius. She's a woman. If only she had been a son 
she would be emperor right now. So I think her intentions are good and honorable, but she's in a really tough position. What happened to the other 12 kids in Marcus Aurelius? Yeah, we don't talk about <laughs> he, them. He sired 14. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he only showed two. <laughs> Again, Lucius is dead right now, okay? <laughs> he should yeah. be dead, but... So let's just move on. And here's the over the other sort of just kind of overarching plot hole, right? Which is as soon as Commodus sees Maximus alive, I mean, I understand the crowd's excited and all that kind of stuff. They could have it where Maximus dies in a training accident behind the scenes or something like I that, know, right? I mean, totally. There's, there's no way that Commodus allows him to live for more than 10 minutes after that moment. But <laughs> He lost a game of Cobra poker. And <laughs> I know. It's, it's totally like they never have to mention his name again. People will be like, Hey, what happened to the to Maximus? Like he was so amazing in, in the Colosseum, and we want to see him fight next. But like, oh no, he died. Roman times, you know, like the word gets around. Someone would have witnessed it. They would have told. That was his fears. That it would have gotten out, and people would have known that he was afraid of Maximus. Right. From that point on, he did not want to make him into a martyr. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's thin. Which is why he was like, okay, well, we'll bring uh, Sven Ole Thorson out of retirement. He can take him on. And then we've got it rigged so that, you know, we've got tigers coming out of the, the floor of the Coliseum. He's going to die, unfortunately. We know how that all works out. <laughs> so that's the next big fight. It's just Maximus one-on-one against the former gladiatorial champion. One question there. So he, the, the, the armor that the gladiator that Maximus is fighting is, is really cool looking, right? It's this bright, shiny silver armor. And you mentioned this. It does have a flip down mask. One of those two eyes is crying. Did you notice that? Yeah, it's got mask? a tear. Yeah. 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 Why is he crying? It's, it's dramatic. I didn't know why he was sad. I just wanted to understand that. <laughs> it's a know. sad gladiator. What I want to know is guy. when, you know, Maximus puts a knife or a sword into his foot into Tigris's yeah, why foot. Why did that kill him? Yeah, why did he suddenly like spit up all this blood like he had yeah. internal injuries? Uh, I didn't quite get that. I think something else happened in that they didn't cover. It seemed very strange because he did like stab his foot and he kills over. Yeah. Like, did he like bite his tongue or something? I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure that if people are thinking about this movie, this scene is or the sequence is probably one of the things that they remember just because of the dramatic effect of pulling back these platforms and having tigers jump out of the ground right one of the tigers actually is like on russell crowe's back at one point and apparently when they were filming this scene they had five tigers that they were using they were rotating tigers in to not get them tired or agitated they had a veterinarian who was on the set that had a tranquilizer gun ready to go (laughs) as they were filming but what's great about all this is as they're filming this sequence russell crowe wanted to go play in some sort of a celebrity soccer game and ridley scott and the producers forbid him from doing so because it was too dangerous (laughs) (laughs) no you must work with the tigers instead yeah you can see in one of the behind the scenes documentary he's laughing he's like Excuse me? He's like, I can't play in a soccer game, but you know, you're having me attacked by tigers? Well, I think that was actually good for him because while he was being you know, filmed with the tigers, they wouldn't let him like 15 feet close to a, one of the tigers. In the celebrity yeah. soccer match, he couldn't get 15 feet to the ball. Oh! <laughs> okay. Not sure where you're going with this. But <laughs> During the scene, so Commodus tells him that he needs to kill the gladiator and Maximus throws down his weapon. So he's offering mercy to his opponent. The one thing that I think is interesting about that is Commodus then comes out and you see the Praetorian guard that surrounds Maximus. And you, you think for a moment that maybe because he didn't follow the emperor's instructions that they're going to kill him. But of course, you know, we're back to that plot device that says that Commodus can't do it. However, Commodus does take this opportunity to really just rile up Maximus. They tell me your son squealed like a girl when they nailed him to the cross. And your wife 
moan like a whore when they ravaged her again and again and again. Time for honoring yourself will soon be at an end. Highness. They're, they're making Commodus like the worst human being you can imagine. <laughs> Does a good job with it, though. They did set up, you have to win over the crowd, you have to win over the people. To some degree, it does explain Commodus's actions on, like, he does want to go against the crowd if he loses the people. Yeah, they, they reference the fact that Rome is, is a mob yeah. a couple times over the course of the film, the senators in particular. Yeah, and I'm not sure how accurate that would be. You don't have to win the public opinion. I think if you were emperor, you would have some uh, a little bit of leeway with that. I don't know. I feel like you sort of do because what happens when you're a tyrant and nobody loves you, people then plot your death. Yeah. And that's happened many, many times. I think it's valid. You know, win the crowd, win your freedom, win the crowd. It's the crowd. You want to have the crowd with you. I get it. So Maximus meets up with Lucilla. The whole idea is that he's going to escape and then he's going to return. All this falls apart really quickly. <laughs> this is, was one place where I had a question, which is, how does Commodus actually crack the code on all this just because Lucius says one thing and somehow it, it trips him off to this entire plan? I guess I was a little bit unclear on this one. This, yeah. this, one, is, this, one, this one got a little fuzzy for me for a second when I was watching. Commodus is not stupid. It was like this one thing that Lucius said. He decided that he's, you know, he's going to go interrogate Lucilla and you know she's scared shitless of what he's going to do to her so she gave it up after all that planning with Gracchus and everything and so what Gracchus gets arrested and um and then he learns the Proximo whole plot of what's yeah what's going to happen and then yeah Proximo dies the pretty much all of the or most of the gladiators die trying to you know Help beat Maximus back the escape. the guards and Poor Cicero. He's sitting there waiting on his horse for Maximus. Meanwhile, he's actually got a noose around his neck. Poor guy. He starts to get strangled. And then as he's hanging there dying from strangulation, he gets a couple arrows in him. So yeah. it's not a <laughs> tough end to Cicero. It's a real fait accompli by, by Commodus, I have to say. But Commodus is very thorough with his killing. I'll give him that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, he did say, and this is one of the lines I liked when in, in the beginning when um, you know uh, Marcus Aurelius told him that he wasn't going to be emperor. And they have their little heart-to-heart, father-son, heart-to-heart. And Commodus says, I would butcher the whole world if you would only have loved me. I think that says a lot about Commodus's character. Commodus is definitely a fan of scorched earth. Yeah. You know what's funny about this too? Granted, I hadn't seen this in a long time, but the whole escape part of this, totally forgotten about because of plotline. Yeah, me too. I remember the gladiator combat. I remember several of the scenes with him becoming a slave and all that, but it completely just, oh yeah, okay, I guess. I, like, I, I had thought that all of his men mostly survived, right? I'd forgotten that they, they killed a whole bunch of them. I wonder how the rewriting affected this. You know, uh, Maximus was supposed to like lead his 5,000 men back into the city and none of that happened. So it seems very quickly that this plot to escape came together and then fell apart very quickly. Much like the Super League. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. A lot of soccer references today. Yeah, it's, it's Europe. It's, fun, it's all taking place in Europe. This winds its way towards the big finale where Commodus is going to challenge Maximus to a duel in the arena. Here's another thing that I think doesn't quite work here. If he's unwilling to kill Maximus because he wants to maintain the loyalty of the crowd and the population of Rome and all that, it seems to me that if he were to fight an obviously injured Maximus, 
that's not really going to help him either, right? I mean, from a reputation, because everyone's going to know that, oh, you pre-hurt Maximus before you guys started the fight. So well, that's well, not exactly fair. Nobody had binoculars back in the day. Yeah. Is it really difficult to see that he's been stabbed already? They've seen Maximus like run and jump on horses, you know, and, and, and do all kinds of crazy shit. Just a Maximus fan making, uh, making excuses for him losing. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Maximus is past his prime is what you're saying? Exactly. They'll just say that but, he was hung over from the night before yeah. and he wasn't at the top Flu-like of his symptoms. game. Flu-like. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and there's kind of a cool sequence where they're on this platform and they're being raised up into the Coliseum and that all looks really good. I'm curious, Colin, what did you think about that during that scene when the flower petals and all that were coming down? Oh, like Carmina Burana and, and yes. Excalibur? Yep. I didn't really think about that. It's sort of been like done to death. Now, if they had been playing Carmina Burana. I got a little bit of a Carmina Burana Excalibur hit off of that. I wouldn't be surprised considering how Hans Zimmer cribbed off of other composers. And everything. <laughs> so Commodus leans around and he dicks a, I don't know what you'd call that thing. A shiv? Uh, yeah, a shiv. Like in, into, it was a into golden shiv. Do you think he poisoned him there? Is that, was that your take? I think no, so. He, or do you think, no, I don't. or is it just a wound? I think it was a little both. Uh, I think he was just bleeding out. But it could be. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. And they start fighting. Uh, I will say that Commodus actually, you know, he's pretty decent with his sword work in terms of fighting Maximus. Yeah, but he's no, he's no real soldier. He's no real fighter because those are all like choreographed moves, which again, just shows Commodus is, he's sort of a, a fake. What I'm thinking is that even a wounded Maximus with all of his battlefield experience, I don't think that fight lasts that long, right? I think like Maximus does the equivalent of like one fake that everybody falls for and then he just kills him. <laughs> Maximus has the experience and Commodus really doesn't. I mean, as soon as Commodus is on where he's losing the fight, at that point, he signals the Praetorian Guard to step in and stop the fight. Don't you think? I mean, there's no way that Commodus ever takes it all the way to the mat. I just don't see it happening. Well, he did, right? He lost his sword at one point, and he was asking for the, uh, the guard to give him his sword, and he refused. Yeah, finally, Quintus shows up. Now yeah. he grew a sack. Way to go, Quintus. I can see like him being able to win him over in the ring. Okay, here's your emperor willing to, to fight the great Maximus and how great I'll be if I can defeat him in the ring. I think that would definitely... It's the great Maximus who's almost looking stumbling drunk when he first comes up off the platform. So well, you shouldn't have had all those drinks last night. You know, that's not, that's not, it's Commodus's fault. <laughs> Don't play Cobra Poker right before jumping in the arena. Exactly. I do love the very end when he gets him right. He has a dagger basically and he shoves it in for a half second and then he's sort of holding there and he waits a couple seconds and then he shoves it in even deeper. So... He enjoys the moment of Commodus' death, I would say. Or at least he, he takes full advantage of the opportunity. Yeah, and the, the best thing about that scene is that the entire Coliseum is absolutely quiet. It's like people are just speechless. Based on the, the hierarchy, does that mean that Lucius is instantly the emperor after Commodus is killed? Probably not. I think that the Senate would appoint a consul. Yeah. They might decide to, to make Lucius emperor, or they might yeah. just have somebody you know uh, rule in his stead until he comes of age. I do not know Roman history, but from what I gathered, the emperor usually has like a trainee that they're working with and who they're going to appoint. You mean like the assistant to the assistant manager? Yeah. <laughs> it's the Dwight Schrute of Roman times? Because it is an aristocracy, right? So it should go down to the, the next heir. Yeah. Because often they right. would appoint someone. They would adopt a next in line. And so it wasn't always the case. I'm sure there's many people who are in the nobility who are like plotting to get themselves in line. Hey, Lucius is next in line, but oh, you know, the craziest thing happened. He just died. Yeah. It's, I don't know how it happened. He had an asp in his bed. I wonder how that got there. Like all those Lannister kids kept dropping off. Exactly. <laughs> Apparently, by the way, this was another script change. So in the original script, 
Maximus lives and he goes back to his farm. Russell Crowe and Ridley Scott both had a very strong opinion that there would be nothing left for Maximus to do after he killed Commodus. Rather than be bored and just wander around and do some farming, they, they decided that it would be a better out for his character to end in death. So that's what happens. Much better ending because you get like the, you know, the, the dream sequence and you know, as he's sort of fading out, reaching to the door, being reunited with his family. I, I think it worked extremely well. I think it's a very touching scene. I got a little misty eyed. I got to say, I think it works really well. Marcus is scoffing, <laughs> but it's a great scene. And at the very end, his men pay tribute to him. And then it wraps up. Then at the very end, it said color by Technicolor. <laughs> Um, yeah, I've got something for you it's, uh, just related to the ending. Yeah. Apparently, there is a very much a an effort to make a sequel. Oh, it's in, the, so it's in the works. It's uh, Apparently, it's it's already in production. It's already in production? Because I, I, I read something earlier this year. So apparently, they, they've been talking about it from the get-go, but it's taken now 21 years. Russell Crowe, he's not going to be a part of it. I mean, I don't, I don't think... I mean, Maximus is dead. It was being pitched as a prequel, actually. <laughs> no, I'm oh, I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious with Maximus. With I mean, age, the, with aging uh, Russell Crowe. Because like, have you seen have you seen Russell Crowe? Maybe it's actually like maybe you recast. No, you would have to. It's the it's it's the young Maximus Chronicles. Maybe that's what you're making. You need the River Phoenix to Harrison Ford. We need the Russell Crowe equivalent. You might as well just make another movie based on the Roman Empire. And just slap a gladiator two on it and be done with it. I'm kind of surprised that Ridley Scott would want to go back and take another run at this universe. He likes to branch out and do a lot of different genres and stuff. How could the guy who directed Gladiator have also directed Alien Covenant? I just don't understand. And Black Rain. See the devil with the red dress on. <laughs> <laughs> she drinks my blood all night. <laughs> all night long. Yeah. <laughs> Black Rain was at a Century Elm Inn. So yes. we see it quite often. Tell me, because I've been trying to find this somewhere. I couldn't find it in like the trailer or anything, but all I can, I thought it was from the trailer and it was like, justice falls like black rain. Was that, was that in the trailer? Sounds about right. But I honestly, I've seen parts of that numerous times. I still really don't know what that movie's about at all. And I don't know that's just because I only saw their same 15 minutes <laughs> over and over and over again. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I saw that movie once all the way through, but all I remember is the scene where Andy Garcia gets his head cut off by a guy on a motorcycle with a samurai sword, and then the guy singing in the bar, and then yeah. cut to Michael Douglas fighting somebody in some mud at the end of the movie. That's, that's about all I know about <laughs> Black Rain. Yeah, I just remember the bar scene mostly. I think, I think Kate Capshaw might be in that movie, right? Isn't she in that movie? If Michael Douglas's character from Basic the Instinct, game? Nick, Nick, the, the detective, it's like a sequel. Some Yakuza do some uh, assassination in the U.S. and then he's got to go to, to Japan to investigate the crime. But he's almost like the same character. It's really kind of weird. Forget it. The Black Rain's not worth talking about. It's, it's really it's really not. I, I did actually, I watched it like about a year ago because I wanted to. Oh, you did? You actually watched it? I did, yeah. Oh. I did because I was just like really yeah. curious. And, you know, it's an all right movie. It's really nothing to write home about. Honestly, yeah. like Ridley Scott, I think he's only really done about maybe five movies that have been really, truly significant. Hey, what'd you think of uh, Kingdom of Heaven as a point of comparison to this? As a point of comparison to this? Kingdom of Heaven gets greenlit because of Gladiator's success. There's a lot of movies that got greenlit because of that. Right, you had, yeah, you had Troy, the Alexander movie that Oliver Stone made. Even movies like 300. I never saw Kingdom of Heaven until about 
six months ago or something like that. What'd you think of it? I thought it, it was actually pretty good. Better than I expected. I actually did like it. Yeah, apparently there is a director's cut that goes an additional like half hour, 40 minutes longer or something too. That's supposed to be even better. I might actually revisit that at some point because I, I, I do recall liking it. I don't think Orlando Bloom is the right guy to lead a movie. That would be the no. one thing I'd say about that. But I thought he was pretty good, but it just, it, it should have been somebody else. Somebody else would have really brought it to life a lot more. So what are your Ridley Scott movies? I'm curious. I'd probably have um, Blade Runner's first. So maybe Blade Runner, Alien, probably Black Hawk Down would probably be the third spot. Third spot to tough. Yeah, I, th- I think Thelma and Louise is a good movie. Yeah. I haven't seen that one in a long time. The best thing that he ever did was in 1973, he directed a short called Hovis, Boy on the Bike. Oh, right. <laughs> I, I, really... I remember that one. It's just like this doofus who rides around the neighborhood. It's a weird movie. It's interesting when you go through all of the films that he's directed because he's uneven. That's maybe how I would describe it. Some stuff is really good, and I think he has the. I think he's actually a, a super talented filmmaker. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He he moves around genres, and he doesn't try and get pigeonholed into one thing. He'll try different things, like Thelma and Louise. You would not expect the guy who directed Alien and Blade Runner to do a Thelma and Louise movie, right? I actually thought his Robin Hood movie with Russell Crowe was okay. I, I recall liking it. I mean, when you think about Robin Hood movies, yeah, you could say that. It was probably one of the better ones. They actually mostly sucked. Nothing beats the Errol Flynn 1938 version. No, Men in Tights is much better. <laughs> no. Is that the one with the fox? That's the one with Mel Brooks. I don't think anyone's okay. actually been able to, to put together a good Robin Hood movie. That one is probably number two, I'd say. Did you Men see the, the recent one with Jamie Foxx and is it Taron Egerton? Is that, is that his name? Taron Egerton? No. I'm talking about the uh, the Disney cartoon one with the fox. <laughs> Maid Marian, by the way, was a fox. I mean, literally, but also figurative. <laughs> you know, if you if you get a chance to see the the recent one, at least a few minutes of the of the the Jamie Fox one, it's pretty funny. It's at least interesting because they're fighting with bow and arrows, but it's almost like a modern take because they can fire the arrows so fast. So it's it's sort oh, of like a yeah. it's like it's like Black Hawk Down with arrows. It's it's a very strange movie. Interesting. Weird. I actually really like Ridley Scott as a director. For the most part, if he's making a movie, I will pay attention to that and probably try to see it. Well, yeah, of course, of course. But when you also look through his filmography, there are four or five films that really stick out. I mean, yes, Blade Runner is probably my favorite. Alien is probably a close second. Gladiator. Matchstick Man. (laughs) I've never even seen it. Then there's a lot of just pretty good, solid movies. But nothing else that really stands out except for Prometheus, which I know you're a huge fan of, not. No, no, Prometheus is a visually striking movie with some interesting concepts and otherwise and a dumb script. stupid. Yeah. <laughs> stupidest. One of the stupidest movies I've seen in a long time. American Gangster is quite good, too. Yeah, American Gangster is good, actually. Yeah. I'd like to see White Squall. I, I totally missed that one, probably mo- mostly be- for its QAnon relationship. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, no, as you can see by the by the blank look on my face. <laughs> Apparently, the you know the the quote or the rallying cry, "Where we go, one we go all." It apparently originates in that movie, White Squall. Yeah, well, thanks, Ridley Scott, for bringing that. To the <laughs> I'm sure he had nothing to do with it. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I'm going to go see a, you know, a Ridley Scott movie when it comes out. Absolutely. All right, well, you ready to uh, wrap on Gladiator or anything else you want to throw out there? Just one thing, I, I just. Uh, bit of trivia i thought was kind of interesting you know when uh, russell crowe uh, sorry maximus is he meets uh, lucius outside the, the coliseum he points to his armor that he's wearing and it's got two horses on it 
And he yeah. says that the, the names of the horses are uh, Argento and Scato. Apparently Argento, I, I think this is in Latin, I, I just assume Argento means silver and Scato means trigger. So it's silver and trigger are the two horses on his best play. And we all, as we all know, or maybe some of our younger listeners who, well, let's face it, we don't have any young listeners. Silver's the horse that was ridden by the Lone Ranger and Trigger was the horse ridden by Roy Rogers. So this is obviously a direct reference to Johnny Depp's the fantastic portrayal of Tonto and whatever that. Oh, the Lone Ranger with, yeah, with Army Hammer. <laughs> was it Gore Verbinski directed that? That was an interesting, in a bad way movie. I forgot. I had two burning questions that I we didn't cover. What's your own personal favorite movie or TV series that's set in the Roman Empire? Spartacus is the one I, I would, that would come to mind for me, probably. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably say Game of Thrones. That's not set in Rome. <laughs> Game of Thrones? No. My personal favorite is actually I Claudius. History of the World Part One. Roman Red. <laughs> <laughs> you care if the Empire falls? Fuck it. Fuck it. <laughs> The, so the the last suggestion I had for that was uh, this the TV series Realm that played on HBO, which was really really good. I I loved it. Fortunately, it was just too expensive for them to keep making, but that's a great series. I'm surprised nobody had Caligula. Maybe if if Mike, your brother Mike, was on the podcast, it, it would, that would be his favorite. Caligula, that's an interesting movie. I'll give it that. You thought Commodus was like creepy and weird. Uh, <laughs> watch Caligula. Yeah, so Colin, Colin apparently is making a strong recommendation for everybody out there to go find Caligula and check it out. Well, all right. Well, I guess we're at the point where we can provide some closing thoughts. Marcus, your thoughts. How's that? <laughs> I'm just glad you joined us halfway through for to provide those insights. <laughs> I hadn't seen it before. This is my first time watching it, which is probably too bad because i think it would have it grew in too much hype um it won it got nominated for so many oscars it got overhyped for so long and i'd never seen it uh so watching it here had very very high expectations and i thought it was a good movie but it didn't have that great of an effect on me too what, what would your letter grade be it's like a solid b b plus wouldn't make my top 238 i think if i watched it back in 2000 and i saw it when it came out initially i probably would because it i can see it being a great like in the theater watching it would probably be pretty amazing yeah i don't know why i didn't see it back then but who knows all right colin how about you obviously i love this movie really brought back the epic the spectacle great acting throughout obviously had a, a very big impact for me when it came out i hadn't seen it in a while so because it was really fun to watch it again it's a solid a absolutely top 238 pretty sure it's on the 238 i'll okay. have to i'll have to check that is your top 238 still holding at 238 or have you added one or two i haven't added anything for some reason, I would like it if you could just make that the top 240 or top 250. It just sounds better. So this 238 throws me. Okay. It's, it's actually now you the top 239. Vampire's Kiss. That did not make the list? <laughs> <laughs> well, sure, that would have got on there. Technically, it is 239 now. Oh, so Vampire's Kiss didn't make it. Good. <laughs> no, I think I added something <laughs> earlier. I forget what it was. So my closing thoughts. So I would give this movie an A. This is not a movie that necessarily is... One of my personal favorite movies of all time. Yeah, I think it's a really good movie. I think Crow's performance is really impressive. I, just the artistry and the craftsmanship and the scale and the scope of this movie just kind of blows me away, right? So that's when, when you look at the way that they you know, filmed it in different areas and the, all the complexity of the arena battles, the beautiful cinematography. And although Hans Zimmer may have 
been borrowing some music. I think that the score is actually really effective and it has some wonderful music in it. So I really, I really enjoy the score. It's a great score. And I, I yeah. don't mean to accuse him of plagiarism, but uh, it, just, yeah. it is quite reminiscent of uh, those other works, which are fantastic works. And they work so well in this movie. So kudos to him. I mean, I really enjoyed this movie. I had a great time watching it. I had not seen it in you know 10 or 12 years. So Nick, thank you very much for the listener request for us to watch this because it was fun to go back to it. Again, for me personally, this is more of a, I would say the needle tilts a little bit towards appreciate versus, you know, sort of deeply love. But I, I do think that this is a really great movie and I, it's incredibly entertaining. For somebody who was looking back initially and saying, yeah, is this really kind of best picture material after watching it? I'm like, yeah, it's best picture material, especially when you put it up against the other four that it was going up against because it's an amazing achievement. It really is. I mean, it's a pretty incredible movie and it's very entertaining and so i will give it an a and a strong recommendation if you haven't seen it quick question yeah because you brought up the best picture do you have a preference like one over the other ridley scott or steven soderbergh well you'd have to go movies right i mean individual movies soderbergh is actually going to be maybe more in line with the movies that i would say uh that's so tough i'd probably say ridley scott but i like soderbergh better (laughs) marcus before you joined colin and i were talking about the fact that is best picture is it best because of the scope and the scale and just the artistry of something that was created or is it best because it's delivering the most effective message yeah. and characters and that kind of thing. I think you tilt one way or the other if you're thinking about that, right? Because Soderbergh, I think, is going to be more on the maybe the character-driven side and the, the tone and the message of the movie. And Ridley Scott is all about the spectacle and just kind of... or I mean, he can yeah. do smaller movies as well, obviously, but the scope and the scale is what's so impressive here. I mean, Gladiator is by far the more big-time Hollywood movie. Where like yeah. Aaron Brockovich, it's a little, it's a great movie. It's fantastic, but it's not the huge spectacle. So when I finally saw Aaron Brockovich, I was like, okay, that was a good movie, but it didn't really, it certainly didn't yeah. blow me away. I mean, I guess, I guess it was Julia Roberts' performance that even, even to this day, I'm not sure that that's necessarily as standout as it is recognized for, but. I want to watch it again. I, I definitely want to watch that one again. Well, I just looked on my list. I have Ridley Scott, I have four Ridley Scott movies. I've got. Alien, Blade Runner, Gladiator, and The Martian, which is something I should have called out earlier. Yeah, The Martian's really Martian's good. Martian's a great movie. Yeah. Soderbergh, he's got three. Out of Sight, Ocean's Eleven, and The Limey. Probably Ridley Scott wins, uh, but I do love Steven Soderbergh. I love both those guys as filmmakers, yeah. actually. So they're, they're both appointment movie directors for me personally. I like Soderbergh, too, because he's a little more risky. He does a little bit more trying to push the envelope. He's not trying to make just Oscar-winning movies. Yeah. Very different filmmakers. Experiments right? a bit more, actually. For, yeah, it's, exactly. It all depends on like what you're looking for. Ridley Scott's great with the, great with an epic. Have you seen High Flying Bird? No. Yeah, it's really it's a Soderbergh movie. It's a good one. He shot it all. I think Colin, you did see it. I think we both I talked did. about yeah. it before. Yeah. 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 Was this the iPhone film? Yeah. 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 It's really good. Yeah. You can't even tell. Yeah, it's, it's, the, the 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 quality yeah. is so amazing. Ridley Scott's not going to be like, oh, let's see if I can shoot a whole film on an iPhone. <laughs> like he's like, no, no way he's going <laughs> to. Right. Okay. How about this one? Let me ask this. So, uh, which of the Scotts, Ridley Scott or Tony Scott? Uh, Tony Scott. I could tell you that too. No, it's it's going to be Ridley Scott. Yeah, I mean, it depends on like what you're judging. Tony Scott makes more fun movies, but like Ridley Scott makes better movies. They're, they're very different. Hmm. I, I've got Tony Scott is he shows up three times as well. Uh, Top Gun. Well, yes, let's see. Right. I would say Top True Gun, Romance. Crimson Tide, and True Romance. Uh, yeah, True Romance. That's it. Yeah, right there. Okay. Yeah. The last Boy Scout did not make the list. He does. He he's he does really fun movies. He makes big fun. Big fun. Yeah. All right. Well, Marcus. We are at the point where you get to choose the next movie, the real DMC 
podcast is going to be reviewing. You did torture us with natural born killers last time. So if you could do something a little bit better this time, at least Colin and I would really appreciate it. I'm going to pick another Alex Garland movie and I'm going to go with 28 Days Later will be my 2002 28 Days Later. Why didn't you say something like a week ago when I rewatched it? <laughs> That'll be fresh well, you in your head. You're already on top of it. That's a good pick because it's a really yeah. good movie. Directed by Danny Boyle, written by Alex Garland. You just watched it? So you didn't take notes, I assume? I did not take notes, no. Uh, well, no. Watch it one no. more time. <laughs> no, I, I gotta I got watch it again. I think I saw it once. I'm not quite sure if I've seen it, though. So I think there's a... I'll, I'll probably watch it. I'll know like 15 minutes in if I had or not. I was going to watch 28 Weeks Later, because I've seen that one as well. It wasn't as good as 28 Days Later, but I, I was sort of yeah. curious to see like the differences between the two that's i think i've confused it too i don't know if i knew there were sequels or not or i i don't we'll see yeah. so 28 days later it's on hulu for free yeah. i think i felt like the quality was not very good but that may have just been the way he filmed it i've never had a problem with hulu like i don't think it'd be the streaming no it wasn't that it was like was it like a poor print or something but anyway okay 28 days later that should be interesting sounds like 28 days later is going to be our next podcast Except for the Friday Night Frights one that we throw in there randomly. So we'll just figure that out. But yeah. We should have done 28 Days Later like a year ago. You know, <laughs> the pandemic was really hitting, you know. Yeah, that would have... Yeah. Contagion, little... Outbreak, Con- oh. just hit them all. I, well, I actually watched those movies. Contagion is Contagion Sodenberg, right? And then we could read The Stand. I might yeah. actually have to put... Ooh, I might have to put that on my list here to bump Soderbergh up to, to four, four spots. Yeah. Because um, oh, that's, that's a fantastic movie. That's a great movie, but man, that's a, that's a bit of a tough sit, too. <laughs> All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed our long and winding conversation uh, about one of the great all-time Roman gladiator films ever made, because it's well-named as Gladiator. We do recognize that from a history standpoint, this gets about an F. <laughs> so, Nick? It's not an F. It's no, like a no, C minus. No. Oh, it's okay. It's yeah, a it's a C minus. It's a it's a D plus. It's a C minus. It's a C. D plus on the it's history a solid C. It passes, but <laughs> barely. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so Nick, you did ask us to do a little bit of right. history. It's got the rough timelines right. Like it's 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 okay. We gave it a <laughs> shot. So, for those of you that are looking to increase your knowledge of Roman history and maybe write a paper based on the progression of what happened, do not watch this movie and assume that Maximus <laughs> was a real person because he was not. Yeah. Uh, so the history doesn't quite work, but the rest of the film is a ton of fun and. More than anything else, it's a very, it's an incredibly impressive achievement from a filmmaking perspective. So it was fun to watch, fun to revisit. Thanks for the recommendation, Nick. Definitely open for more recommendations. So if anybody made it this far into the podcast and you want to shoot us a message on Twitter with another recommendation or post a comment on our realdmc.com page, go for it and we'll uh, take a look at it. And if we like the movie, maybe we'll do it. And if not, we'll ignore your comment. <laughs> If your suggestion sucks, we're going to skip it. (laughs) Send us only good suggestions. We are not doing the My Little Pony movie. (laughs) No, no. Uh, All right. And with that, this is the Real DMC Podcast signing off. Were you not entertained? (laughs) Nice. estis oblectati? They tell me your son squealed like a pig when they nailed him to the cross. And your wife moaned like a whore when they ravaged her again and again and again. (laughs) He's creepy, man. He is creepy.